We are focused on creating change beyond just this one shooting, that we are about young people being involved in the government to better the lives of everyone. It's been one year since 17 people were killed in a Parkland, Florida high school shooting. In the first full legislative session since that event, a handful of gun control bills are stalled here on Capitol Hill. Welcome back to 45 Days, KUER's weekly legislative recap. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Julia Ritchie. It's day 19 of the 2019 general session. Only 26 days to go. So if you remember, Nicole, last year, the Parkland shooting stopped everyone in their tracks, Mm -hmm. uh, including state lawmakers. It was this week last year that Mitt Romney was supposed to announce his run for Senate to replace uh, retiring Senator Orrin Hatch, uh, but he ended up delaying it out of respect for the victims of Parkland. Right. And at the Utah Capitol, state lawmakers quickly formed a commission on school safety. And even though there wasn't much time left in that session, one Republican, Steve Handy, started work on a red flag law. So these red flag laws were only in a handful of states before Parkland. But now that number has almost doubled. Mm -hmm. And so this is kind of a law that allows families and law enforcement to seek a court order to confiscate weapons from someone who poses a threat to the public or themselves. Right. And if you remember, Handy's bill didn't get enough support from conservatives. So he's trying again with it this year. And he's not alone. It was after the session we saw 8,000 people rally at the Capitol for the March for Our Lives demonstration. And Utah Democrats decided that after years of inaction, 2019 would be the year that they pressed for new gun reform. Right. So fast forward to this year. So far, the only major movement on gun bills we've seen is a resolution that basically says we have enough gun laws. We don't need any more. We told you a little bit about that one last week. Well, on Valentine's Day, the anniversary of the Parkland shooting, the full House passed it. And the only Republican no vote came from Representative Handy, who's running that red flag bill. So Representative Corey Malloy is sponsoring that resolution, HJR 7. Uh, he's a Republican from Lehigh who has become sort of the guy who runs NRA-endorsed bills. And I talked to him about his thinking behind it. The whole point of the resolution is let's enforce the laws that we have. Um, that doesn't mean we can't look at other laws and stuff, but let's don't do things that will infringe on our constitutional rights while we're trying to uh, protect our society. So there are other gun reform bills this year. Like we mentioned, Representative Handy has reintroduced the red flag bill. Other proposals include safe storage laws, which would require guns to be locked up at home when they're not in use. And that's the only one that's been assigned to a Mm -hmm. committee right now. Another bill would increase liability for firearm owners if their gun is used in a crime. You'll remember this came after the shooting death of University of Utah student Lauren McCluskey. The man who killed her borrowed his gun from a friend under false pretenses and the friend won't face any penalties for uh, lending out his weapon. Right. And Lauren's mom, Jill McCluskey, tweeted out her support for that change. Um, Another bill would prohibit domestic violence perpetrators from even having a gun as long as they have that on their record. And another one would expand background checks. And then another one would restrict having a gun within 500 feet of a school. So here's the thing. All of these bills, except for one, that safe storage bill, are stuck in the House Rules Committee. That's the body that decides where to send proposed legislation, if it goes to a committee at all. And House Minority Leader Brian King is not too thrilled by that. It does strike me as odd that the bills involving guns that have gone out are bills that are favorable from the perspective of Second Amendment folks. Look, there are a lot of bills out there that are dealing with guns or some aspect of guns, whether it's gun safety or whether it's background checks or whether it's reporting about failed 
background checks, and there's no reason to pick and choose only the bills that are favorable from the Second Amendment community and hold the others at this point. You have talked. I actually asked the Rules Committee chair about what's going on with these gun bills. In an email, Republican Representative Tim Hawks, he's the chair of that committee, says that they normally release similar bills in batches so that they all go to one committee mm-hmm. at a time. And he predicts they may have another group of gun bills going out at some point. But again, not really committing to right. it. Right. Right. So that's where things are now. Uh, but back to the red flag law for a minute. This is probably the most high profile gun bill at this point, right? Definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, Malloy, who sponsored that resolution we told you about earlier, even has what he calls an alternative to Representative Handy's bill that would allow a spouse or cohabitant to turn over a weapon kind of like a watered-down version Mm -hmm. of a red flag law. And that has drawn some criticism from folks like Jen Oxborough, who's the executive director of the Utah Domestic Violence Coalition, who says this is an effort to undercut Handy's bill. They're not trying to exceed federal law. They're not trying to take away civil liberties. They're just trying to improve safety. And and so they're, they're really being pretty moderate about it. And I think that's why law enforcement is starting to come along and support it as well. Handy acknowledged this week that his bill faces an uphill climb, and he's been trying, I don't know how successfully, Mm -hmm. to convince some of his fellow Republicans that uh, the bill does have due process and other constitutional safeguards, such as requiring uh, the weapon to be returned to its owner within a certain time frame. Right. We did hear a little bit from Governor Herbert this week about this, too. As usual, he was also pretty noncommittal about whether he could sign Handy's bill if it even passes. So it's it's not a black and white issue to me. It's a little more complex. And due process has got to be a part of any discussion on red flag laws. Yet despite the slow movement on gun reform, activists found some openings through this strategic reframing of the issue to deal with two very Utah-specific gun problems, which is our high rate of youth suicides and domestic violence. Right. Utah has the fifth highest suicide rate in the country. And according to a recent Harvard study, 85 percent of gun deaths in Utah are suicides. So this is an issue we've seen lawmakers chipping away at in the past few years. And guns are used in most domestic violence cases as well. Right. So that's why we've seen more progress on bills that address these issues without specifically regulating guns. So some of them would make it harder for a person convicted of domestic violence to get their record expunged. There's also another proposal back this year to use GPS trackers on domestic violence perpetrators. Right. And Representative Steve Ellison uh, would give out coupons toward a gun safe to people who apply for concealed carry permits, among other things. And I should add that they're focusing a lot on pumping money into school safety. Right. That's something Governor Herbert mm-hmm. touched on, $30 million for school counselors. Again, not saying anything about firearms, but... All these other little things Peripheral things. Yes. So this is a tactic that advocates say they can actually move the needle on since it seems like we're not seeing a lot of movement on other gun bills. And we'll talk to one March for Our Lives activist about this in just a moment. Hi, it's Nicole Nixon from 45 Days. Every week, Julia Ritchie and I break down the latest news and bills coming out of the Utah legislative session. If you enjoy the podcast, you should sign up for the 45 Days newsletter. It's like our show, except it's an email and you read it. Let us send you email. Sign up at 45days.org.
Noah Blumenthal is a 17-year-old senior at Roland Hall High School in Salt Lake. Noah is also an outreach director for the local March for Our Lives chapter here in Utah, and activists from this group have been up on the hill all session, pushing some of the bills we just mentioned. I talked to Noah this week about what's changed and what hasn't in the year since the Parkland shooting. What I've noticed recently is that our elected officials have been more open to meeting with us, but not necessarily more responsive. Um, There hasn't been a lot of substantial change that we've observed yet. You were at a hearing with a conservative lawmaker, uh, Representative Corey Malloy, who introduced a a resolution saying Utah has enough gun laws and uh, we should just be enforcing them in order to prevent violence. Do you agree with him? I guess I agree and disagree with the way that you just framed that um, bill because I agree that that Utah does have gun laws and that we should be enforcing them. However, I disagree that there are enough. He was talking about responsible ownership. He was talking about safe storage. And when I heard safe storage, I thought it was just so interesting because Utah has incredibly minimal safe storage laws. We don't have any regulations really on how people keep or carry their guns. And what we do have is incredibly limited and Representative Malloy is right in that it's not really being enforced. And so the counter argument that we wanted to bring up is that we wanted to talk about how it affects young people. Ultimately, what we see is we see a demographic trend. We are seeing an increase in gun deaths in Utah, and specifically an increase in suicides. And we note that a lot of suicide deaths are the result of firearms. Our goal is to reduce that as a whole, and I think that it should be the goal of the entire Utah legislature and of any governmental legislative body to try to reduce the amount of harm, self-harm, mental health issues by simply instituting laws that will reduce the probability that somebody has access to a firearm while they're in the same state in which they might be hurting themselves or one another. Do you have more success if you reframe the issue away from the actual weapon itself? Absolutely. What we've found in our lobbying, you know, for as long as we've been doing it, which is a short time, if our arguments are based around it doesn't really affect uh, typical gun owners who are responsible, who are trained, who know how to use their guns, then we find that it does much better. The other thing I would say about House Joint Resolution 7 is it's about the conversation that we have about gun control, which is unfortunate because, frankly, if it does have some bearing, people ask for ideological consistency between people who voted one way in House Joint Resolution 7 and those who voted another way. And Frankly, it goes against a March for Lives mission statement that we try to address gun control uh, issues with complexity and with nuance and the idea that any policy concerning the way that Americans own um, and Utahns own lethal weapons or just weapons of any kind is so deeply com- complex. You know, we have to consider an individual's rights, their individual's abilities to do different things. We're also considering public safety and how we balance those. These are such complicated issues that vary from case to case, from state to state, from city to city, from you know, individual to individual. Is this a movement with legs? So much of the time, movements can form after a a horrific event and then they fade from the public consciousness. We are now at a year anniversary here of the Parkland High School shooting. Will this continue to be in the front of the public's mind? It's a major milestone for our movement because that is kind of what sparked our movement. However, I like to interpret the movement differently because if we interpret this movement as simply something that's coming from a single shooting in a single place, it loses a lot of its influence. 
I believe what makes this movement unique, powerful, and special is that it is about student activism and students being involved in the civil process, in um, integrating the way that young people think about social issues to the way that young people interact with civic issues. We are focused on creating change beyond just this one shooting, that we are about young people being involved in the government to better the lives of everyone. Noah Blumenthal is an organizer with the local March for Our Lives movement. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. KUER's mobile app gives you everything you love about our station on the go. Stream KUER live on your phone. Listen to NPR and local stories on demand. Then shift gears and listen to our 24-7 classical music station or explore podcasts like Radio West and 45 Days. It's all on the KUER app. Download it for free for Android or iOS, wherever you get your apps. So earlier this week, the House was debating a bill about trampoline park safety. It's the legislation you didn't know we needed and maybe didn't want. But something interesting happened during the debate when Representative Paul Ray stood up. I've been waiting 17 years to say this, but... Finally, something that my circus background will help me with. (laughs) So I can start with when I was in the circus. So that obviously got us a little curious about Ray's circus performing past, and we stopped by his office to investigate. Representative Paul Wright, welcome to 45 Days. Thank you. So we know that all lawmakers, believe it or not, have lives outside of Capitol Hill. But a lot of people, including us, were pretty shocked by the revelation that you used to be in the real-life circus. So tell us about that. Well, I I spent seven years uh, performing in the circus. Started when I was 16 years old. I did high-wire trapeze, balancing bike, adagio, uh, French trapeze, single trapeze, uh, and four-lane cradle. So was this something that you started, like, did, are you self-taught or did you go to a circus school? How did, how did you actually join a circus? Well, my hometown had a circus based out of it. I grew up in Peru, Indiana, circus uh-huh. capital of the world. And so I just went up one day and said, I want to join. And they had some tryouts and I made it and they trained me how to do it. So I'm now noticing this Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey poster on your wall. Um, what did your time in the circus teach you about law enforcement or lawmaking? Is there any like crossover there? You know, there, there is, because the thing that you learn most in the circus is how to work with others. You know, people's lives depend on what you do up in the, you know, 40 feet in the air with no net. You got to be careful what you do and you've got to be able to learn to trust other people. And so that was a lot. And just hard work. Uh, you know, I would practice eight to 10 hours a day. Uh, when we were working and that kind of ethic comes over to here when you're trying to get things right. And I think the biggest thing is I learned how to deal with clowns. And that's why I got into <laughs> politics because I missed the clowns and thought I'd come back up here. Mm-hmm. And you said you did trapeze and so and high wire. and high wire. Was there ever a moment when you were up on the high wire where you're like, oh no, I'm going to fall. Like I always wonder about the fear of falling as a circus performer. You know, if you're not scared when you're up there, then you're going to fall. That's just how it is. That fear of falling is what keeps you on the wire, keeps you on the trapeze. Uh, On the trapeze, we had nets uh, for the most part, on the flying trapeze. I didn't have a net on single trap or double trap. But, uh, and and that's where you learn to trust yourself and and you learn, you know, you, you just learn to focus and get the job done because there's no room to fail. If you fail, you die. It's just that simple. 
Is there anything, I'm really curious about this, is there anything about circuses that you think the average person would be surprised to know, like behind the scenes stuff or anything like that? You know, the, the circus is a big family. Uh, when, when you join the circus, they become your brothers, your sisters, your mothers, your fathers. It's just a big traveling family. For instance, Ringling Brothers, and they were here, they had a school. And all the kids for the performers uh, went to the school on the circus train. Um, so lot, lots of neat little things about the circus and, you know, just the, uh, the time spent. It's not just performing, you know, it's a lot of practicing uh, between shows. A lot of times we're trying to figure out new tricks to do and trying not to get hurt in the process, which is hard sometimes, uh, in order to do that. And of course, you always had the animal rights part of it, but what they didn't understand is animals are taken better care of than I was. If I got hurt, I was on my own. I actually would have to go to the veterinarian to get something looked at because we didn't have doctors. Uh, well, the one doctor was one of our clowns, and so you kind of wondered about the doctor and the clown makeup <laughs> telling you to do this. You're like, is he clowning around or is he serious? But, uh, but it was a lot of fun. It was a great way to grow up. How many bones did you break? I've broken 17. Uh, that includes fingers, ribs, noses, uh, cracked vertebrae, broken leg, ankle, um, ruptured the uh, carotid artery that hooks into the aorta from a fall that I had. So uh, a few bumps and bruises. And the vet stitched you up every time. <laughs> That's right. Uh, you'd be surprised exactly what happens. You're between acts. So it's real quick to stitch up. There's no Novocaine sometimes. It's just stitch it and run. Also good for politics. <laughs> exactly. Got to learn to deal with the pain. Any chance that you might return to the circus as well and make your own comeback? <laughs> you know, I actually still go or play around on the trapeze and the high wire. Uh, I was just back a couple months ago swinging on the trapeze. And um, every once in a while in 2015, I went back and did a, did a show for charity. And uh, we're talking about potentially doing one in July back in Indiana again. So, uh, so I've been in the gym trying to make sure that I stay in shape to do that. Representative Paul Ray, uh, Utah State representative and a circus performer extraordinaire. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I think the Utah legislature's tagline should be kind of like Barnum and Bailey's, the greatest show on earth. I am just glad that they freed the animal crackers from the cage <laughs> on the box. Yes. Have you ever been to the circus? I think I went once or twice. Couldn't have been that good. <laughs> 45 Days is a production of KUER News. This episode was produced by Tim Slover with original music by David Whited. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter going out every Monday. To do that and to find more local news and legislative coverage, visit our website at KUER.org. And if you have a secret circus past or an interesting side hustle, let us know about it. Email us at our new email address, 45days at KUER.org. You can always find us on social media, too. I'm at Julia Ritchie. That's R-I-T-C-H-E-Y. And I am at underscore Nixo, N-I-X-O. See you next week. Bye.